My name is Jesse, and you are listening to Listed, my podcast where we rank and list things in pop culture. And man, it is going to be a really fun show today. One that uh, um, I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, I have two amazing guests and a topic that I feel like um, there are these two individuals are very well equipped to talk about. And it's a really interesting one for Listed. You know, we break down a lot of things in pop culture, uh, but this one also, uh, this list is going to allow us to talk about some interesting ideas with social issues and kind of things going on in, in, in the country right now. We're going to be talking about uh, some of our favorite interracial pop culture duos with the host of an incredible new podcast called Some of My Best Friends Are. Today, I'm joined by Khalil Gibran Muhammad, who is a historian. He is uh, at the, the Ford Foundation He's the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And Ben Austin, who is a journalist and author of the book, High Risers. Um, your guys' podcast is so much fun to listen to right. um, because you guys talk about a, a lot of issues that are at the front of people's minds. But you guys come at it from a really unique approach because you've both been, for people who, who are... Uh, listening and not seeing us on Zoom. Uh, ben, you're white. Khalil, you're black. And you guys are longtime friends. Tell me, yes. how how long have you guys known each other? We've known each other for 35 years. We, wow. we met when we were freshmen in high school. Uh, I met Khalil. I, I started a, a part-time job after school at a computer store that was in our neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. And I look up and my boss is this 14-year-old uh, guy who's about six inches shorter than me. And it's this guy, Khalil Muhammad. Yeah, man. So, I, you know, so what he's really saying is that I was his boss from the day we met. It's true. Um, yep. Yep. And uh, we we've been thick as I've always, thieves. I've always been working for the man. <laughs> Talk about role reversal, right? Yeah. 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 So so we've been thick as thieves ever since. I mean, we grew up playing pickup basketball, um, we, a game that was like a an a, a city version of baseball uh, called stickball strikeout uh, strikeout yeah yeah the uh, strikeout we 16 inch softball 16 inch softball we we played tennis junior tennis together um ben was a little better than me so he went on to play in college uh but we we basically have done everything that you would expect uh, the closest of friends to do uh you know he was at my wedding i was at his wedding he was there when my firstborn was born i was there when his firstborn was born um it's been it's been a great ride and, and now you guys are both have very prestigious careers and are very respected individuals and intellectuals and you and you've started this podcast and the the ideas of it is to confront a lot of ideas really head on as it comes to yeah. kind of race and uh, you know kind of racial tension, but also kind of ra- how racial dynamics can play into relationships. You know that is not a podcast. I think a lot of people would would be comfortable hosting in 2021, just because some of those conversations are so delicate. So, tell me a little bit about the approach when you guys were kind of crafting the idea for the show of why you wanted to take the approach that you did. Well, I think because of our our closeness, we're able to talk very openly and intimately about these issues in a way, as you said, that most people can't. And I think modeling those kinds of conversations is really powerful. Um, how do you talk in this way without feeling threatened, without being angry, without all this kind of baggage where you could actually like penetrate these ideas and, and discuss them really, really deeply, but with, without all the other things that kind of cloud them? 
and then at the same time, so, you know, we, it's called some of my best friends are, which is kind of a, you know, uh, a send up of this idea that friendship alone is, is the thing that you need to, to overcome, you know, differences and racism and all the problems in our country. Um, so we have this close bond, um, but then we use it to sort of explore deeper issues beyond just friendship. You know, so there's the friendship, which is clear and apparent throughout. And so that's fun, I think, just to witness it, to experience it. But, you know, if we're going to talk about changing society, it's more than two people being buddies. One of the things that I've loved about the the show is the way that there is this good faith approach to difficult conversations. Yeah, because that's a good way to put it. I, I feel like the the... One of the things that makes conversations, not just about race, but any kind of issue that has kind of a lot of kind of social weight to them is that, especially kind of in the era of like cable news and social media, it's easy to try to take a bad faith approach and even find something, you know, find people saying the right thing the wrong way or just kind of picking things apart. You know, what was it like when you guys first kind of sat down to record? You know, these are probably conversations you guys had had behind the scenes a lot. But when you put a microphone in your face, you're like, this is going on the internet and people can (laughs) chop this up and put it on Twitter. What is it like kind of going into each episode, you know, taking that good faith approach, but also knowing like, listen, this is a, a delicate, these are delicate topics. Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, and the truth is that it's kind of natural for us because we know each other so well. And even if we disagree, we're not disagreeing uh, from the position of uh, impugning the other person's motivations um, or character. And so if I disagree with Ben, it's not because I think he's white-splaining and therefore you know, maybe this is a microaggression and we're not going to be friends anymore. (laughs) You know, it's like, if I disagree with him, I'm going to disagree with him in the same way I disagree with my uh, relatives or my black friends uh, where, you know, we just don't agree. Right. I I have a cousin who uh, supported Trump. So let's talk about this we Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Like, like all those blacks for Trump's t-shirts and in, in, uh, in, in, in those rallies we've seen and are likely yeah. to see uh, in the coming years, if this guy runs again. So, so the, the point is for, for Ben and me, you know, we're signaling in many ways to a, an audience that you can in fact have authentic conversations and you can get at some of the toughness of these issues. But, you know, for me personally, um, I like the idea for the show that white people get to hear what another white person sounds like when they're vulnerable, when they're honest, mm. um, when they engage these tough issues, uh, sometimes from a position of learning, other times by putting themselves in the story, because over my 25 years of teaching, of having these conversations with people I didn't know that well, most of my students have always been white. I've taught at Indiana University. I teach at Harvard. These are not historically black colleges. Is that white people are reticent to talk about their racialized experiences, even though they have them, even though they've been socialized in ways that they have opinions about why there are racial disparities, why black people live in those communities, why they live in their own. It doesn't mean everybody's a racist and, and thinks the most negative things about those situations. But there's often a hesitation about acknowledging that these are thoughts that they've had. These are experiences that they've had. Um, and Ben, you know, is like, look, I'm the white guy who was often a minority in the room. And in the school and, you know, on the corner. 
And so that's liberated him, so to speak, uh, to be able to lean into having his own racialized understanding of the world. Yeah. Well, and and what I what I've really enjoyed about the episodes you guys have released, and and particularly the topic that we're we're talking about, is they're through relatable lenses. Whether it's something where I think a lot of people have thoughts about whether it's you know uh, systemic injustice in the just the criminal justice system and going to prisons, or you know talking about a horror movie franchise like The Candyman, which has yeah. these sort of kind of interesting racial undertones or the work, you know, with, as a lot of, with the work of Jordan Peele or like a buddy cop movie where, you know, like, let's say, I'm sure it'll come up in our conversation here. Cause when we're talking about interracial pop culture duos, you know, a lot of people can watch uh, a film like lethal weapon and just see this kind of funny dynamic between, you know, rebel cool guy, Mel Gibson and kind of buttoned up Danny Glover and not really unpack the racial undertones, but it's also kind of, a way that I feel like uh, people from a lot of different perspectives can have these conversations through a lens that we all at least share the experience of watching the movie together, right. even if we come to different conclusions about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and I love that you, I mean, really appreciate you, Jesse, sort of showing the range of the show, because even though this is our first season, we're, you know, with three, three shows in, I mean, we, we've built a season around reaching uh, as broadly as possible with both pop culture and politics, you know, public policy, as well as the personal narratives uh, of our own lives and, and have, being kids of the 1980s, growing up in a time, you know, we were the first kids, white and black, to sort of be the promise of integration and the possibility of a post-racial America. And in some ways, that's how we were raised to think about these things. And so now we get to revisit our past and partly ask this question in each episode, like, what were we learning? What did we not pay attention to? Yeah. And what is the lesson for this moment so that we don't repeat those mistakes? Mm. That, that's so good. Yeah, just like those conversations are heavy and deep and they're actually really fun. You know, yeah. like they're, they're actually kind of uh, uh, really enjoyable to have. And I think, you know, that that's part of the show as well. And, and I, I also love the the perspectives of because you guys grew up in Chicago. I know Ben used to live in Chicago. And, yep. you know, I feel like Chicago is such an interesting place. It's right in the middle of the country. It is a melting pot, but there's also a lot of kind of Midwestern values that are unique to that area. And even being children of the 80s when Chicago was at, I, you know, I was watching like an old 30 for 30 the other night. It's about the 85 Bears. And it was like, even that seems in retrospect somewhat significant seeing these guys in the Super Bowl shuffle that are, you know, it's a pretty ethnically diverse group of, you know, the 85 Bears. Where, you know, you have, you know, Jim McMahon with his sunglasses and Mike Singletary. It's like, man, Chicago really is a place where you guys probably were able to form an interesting perspective that people in other parts of the country in the 80s didn't. How much does being from Chicago kind of influences influence your ideas about kind of race and also kind of, you know, just relationships with diverse communities? Oh, right. well, 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 hold on a second. I won't be in the respond, but I just got to say, dude, you just gave us an episode idea. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Yes. Well, yes. I'll listen to it. I'll listen yeah. to it. Yeah. I, re I, re I remember where we were when we watched that Super Bowl. Khalil. Oh, you my gosh. And it was the New England Patriots. And who knew that we would come to despise those people? <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember where we saw the Super Bowl? I don't know. We saw it in a in there was a party in Regent's Park in your mother's apartment building. Wow. And it was like, you know, 
It was down at like the where the swimming pool was. The swimming like pool. A big screen. No, we were like the only children there. It was like all singles, like black singles. And yeah. we're like, they're like two, two boys, like in the swimming pool in the game. It was a yeah. weird thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Chicago is uh, um, immensely important to our understanding of the world and, and understanding of race. Like, so we come from a city, a, a neighborhood on the south side, Hyde Park, that is pretty remarkably diverse. Um, and yet the city is very remarkably segregated. Uh, you know, one of may, probably, you know, often said that the most segregated city in America. So we're understanding segregation and, and divisions all over the place. And yet we live in this space where uh, you're in classrooms where, you know, it's multiracial. It's looking, like you said, like the 85 bears. Um, yeah. And and so our understanding is being shaped for this. And, and we're not alone in this. There's a reason why, like at the University of Chicago, the sociology department uh, is so famous because they're tackling these issues of race in Chicago that are explaining the country. That's explaining yeah. America to itself. Yeah. And, uh, and just just I mean, in case it's not known, I mean, so Chicago is is home to both Jesse Jackson, Harold Washington, who is and not kind Chicago, of a, our, our neighborhood, our, our pocket of the south right. side. Yeah. That's right. Harold Washington, who who is the first black mayor of Chicago, but is also exemplary of a kind of new politics in America where, you know, progressives and white liberals and, and black uh, progressives come together, you know, and make a new possibility out of a city. Uh, and then that same ground is the same ground that gives birth to Barack Obama's career. Yeah. And, you know, he his his home in Chicago is three blocks from where Ben currently lives and five blocks from where we went to high school. Mm. It, it, it does make Chicago. It, it really is sort of this interesting epicenter when you think about it of not just culture, but the way culture thinks about, you know, uh, uh, race and, you know, kind of race's role in our understanding of culture. I mean, even, you know, I know a lot of people probably have watched The Last Dance in the last year about yes. the, mm-hmm. and not to keep going back to sports, but I do feel like <laughs> sports is a big part of the beating heart of Chicago, where that is also a big part of that story is a young Black man becoming one of the most famous people in the world and really kind of transcending cultural influences, you know, not just from basketball fans or, you know, uh, uh, from, you know, different kind of cultures and different, but it, it really was Chicago birthed that. And that's a really unique place. And you bring up sports, I think is really relevant because as we start to talk about our list of interracial buddies, it's not that we're, we're unique, but we are rare. And like mm-hmm. the spaces where those kinds of bonds are formed are pretty rare also. So then you start to look for them and it ends up being in places like sports or the military or you know, or music, you know, when it happens yeah. or cop yeah, yeah. shows. I mean, like, yeah. It, and that's that's actually kind of limited. Right. It's not like, yeah. you know, two high school teachers or, uh, yeah. you know, it's it, it's interesting that the, the instances are really rare. It's telling in itself. Yeah. Well, well, guys, let's go ahead and jump into the list. Let's get what do you guys have? Uh, the first one that you want to talk to interracial pop culture duos. So right, Khalil, you're on it. You're on it. No, no, no. I want to. I want to hear from you. Like, why don't you uh, let's throw them out and we can sort of talk about them together. Like you could even you could even present it to me. What do you think about this one? Well, the the, the first one I, I thought of, which is just like too, too perfect to pass up is is that crazy song. Um, I forgot an exact year it comes out. 
ebony and ivory mm-hmm. with with two musical geniuses, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. Do, do you remember the video of, of like them sitting together on a piano um, playing this ebony duet? And ivory <laughs> live together in perfect. I mean, this is like the perfect meta narrative for the 1980s mm. as a kind of moment where finally we're just going to be together and live in harmony by getting to know each other. Right. And, and that's, that's both the beauty of like the song's aspirational message. Um, and also like the limitations of like, Oh, okay. Right. Well, yeah, we could sing this song. We can go to the same concerts. We can love on each other's music. The Beatles, the entire music catalog was inspired by black music. And yet, you know, all kinds of madness is happening uh, in the country, you know, largely around the criminal justice system, which is growing leaps and bounds at the same time that this music, I know Ben is like, there he goes. He like starts with a happy note (laughs) and he is in the minor chord. (laughs) Well, the first thing I got to say is when that song came out, uh, I was in school. And in my class, there was a girl named Ebony and a boy named Avery. And so everybody would sing to them, you know, Ebony and Avery. And they would crack up, you know. Um, secondly, those two people weren't friends, right? Like that, that's one of the things. There, there was no way in the world that they, that they were buddies. And so, I mean, it was construction of the song, which is interesting, as you're saying. But it was also so apparent that they didn't have any shared past together. Of course. Right. Right. But that's that's kind of the failure, right, of pop culture in and of itself to reflect. It couldn't find two musicians that that had been recording and growing together for decades. Right. That that wasn't the case. That's deep. Yeah. 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 By the way, the film came out. I mean, not the film. The song came out in 1982. Right. So it's the same. You know, I'm 10 years old. You're 11. But it's the same year that 48 hours comes out. So a kind of, you know, as we talk about cultural zeitgeist, right, there's something yeah. in the air and the water in that moment. Well, right. what's what's interesting about that song, too, is, I mean, the, the, the entire construct of the song is acknowledging differences. But, you know, talking about, you know, the, the kind of harmony that can still exist with people who are different. But, you know, I grew up, I remember I was listening I'm, to music like in the early 90s. I grew up in like kind of a a very kind of Christian-y setting for there's this group DC Talk, which was a biracial group. And they had a song uh, in the whole contract of the song, Why Can't We Be Colorblind? And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, about 10 years, it was probably early 90s, about 10 years after Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney write a song that's like, no, we need to find a way to acknowledge our differences to fast forward 10 years. And again, these are anecdotes, but I still feel like they kind of reflect a shifting approach to acknowledging differences why do you, what do you, how do you guys kind of see that in, because I feel like that's a thing that's going to come up that dichotomy you'll see in 48 hours. It's something that's directly acknowledged. Yeah. And then like a lethal weapon, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of the colorblind approach. When we're talking about pop culture duos, why do you think there are those sort of two very distinct approaches? Yeah. I mean, the colorblind thing, which we sort of been, you know, there's a way for white people to say, of course, I'm not a racist. You know, not only do I have these friends, but I don't even see race. You know, right. which right. which is, you know, what a thing to say, like, like Khalil and I would not be very close friends if we actually didn't see one another, if we didn't That's acknowledge right. who we are. Like yeah. part yeah. of being a friendship is being like, oh, man, all the aspects of you like I can mess with and you can yeah. mess with all the aspects of me. Otherwise, we ain't friends. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like we ain't tight. 
Yeah, and furthermore, Shabbat dinner wouldn't have made any sense. I would have yeah. been like, "What's going on here?" Right? Like, <laughs> I don't even see it. I don't even see Mahala. I don't even see. It. I don't even see you light it up. I don't see difference. <laughs> you know, like, like what do you? Yeah, yeah like that's yeah. you know, Jesse. Have you have you ever played Bidwis? No. No, so you even know what that is? No. It's a card game. Exactly. Aha. Aha. So see, see, Midwest is a is it's not only a blank a card game that black people play, but it is probably mostly a game that that at least in, in the US black people play. And it's a more advanced version of another game called Spades. But it's yeah. one of these cultural traditions that in a lot of black households is like the dividing line between the real adult card players mm. and the kitty card players. And the kitty yeah. card players can also be adults. And so Ben learned how to play Bidwist. Uh, we learned together one summer and we went on a Bidwist tour on the South Side of Chicago. So uh, Ben's larger point is like colorblindness was never going to actually deliver on the promise of, of, of equality, of equity, because what it really was, was a kind of assimilationist um, notion that you know, there's a universal whiteness. And if we can all live in that universal whiteness, then everybody else can kind of leave your cultural traditions behind. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about a movie like 48 Hours, which you talk about on, on the first episode, the first episode of Some of My Best Friends Are, you know, the, the white cop played by Nick Nolte and the black cop played by Eddie Murphy. Not black cop, the black criminal. The black, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. The, black, yeah, the black guy. Yeah. Uh, that, that, Nick Nolte, the only way he sees him at first is through a racist lens. Mm -hmm. And so part of saying I don't see color, I don't see color is to sort of, you know, dispel of that, of the racism, but it's not putting anything in its place, right? It's not, you know, it, it's saying like, I'm not going to see all these things. And, and in the movie, like he lists them, he says all the, you know, his, his racism is, is explicit. Um, and then he has to learn to like this guy and they become friends. You know, all cop shows, cop movies are in a way like, love stories, you know, that they're going to fall in love with one another in some way. Um, but he has something else has to replace that besides blankness, besides emptiness. Yeah. All right. It's your turn, man. You've, you've been, you've been on my coattails. It's now your turn. Uh, all right. All right. So, so this is actually a movie that's going it, to, it actually is, it's a movie that predates us, but you brought up the Chicago bears. So this is a yeah. Chicago bears one. Okay. It's, it's, it's the movie called Brian song. Do you know what it is? I, it's been a long time. Okay. I, I, I like no, honestly, probably the, 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 it was like a recurring joke in like family guy when I was in college. Yeah. So I think that was like okay. my introduction to Brian's so, song, so, but yeah. So it's a weepy and it's a true story about a running back on the Chicago bears named Gail Sayers, who was a superstar. And he actually was like one of the greatest running backs ever, but he gets injured early in his career. And the fullback who was playing with him is this guy, Brian Piccolo who dies of a debilitating disease during their careers. Mm. And the movie version of this Brian song has uh, Gail Sayers played by Billy D. Williams, who's like the coolest black man in America yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And Brian Piccolo is played by James Caan, who is also one of the coolest white dudes in the world. Yeah. At that time. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then James Caan dies and, and Billy D. Williams says, you know, I'm, I love Brian Piccolo. And everyone is crying. <laughs> um, so... This, this sort of bond through sports and then also through tragedy that's connected. Um, I will say that, you know, Khalil was talking about us growing up in a, in a strange South side world uh, of, a, a, you know, Gail Sayers kids lived on my block. Um, 
And so the, the kids and, and did, you should also say, I mean, that Gail Sayers was truly a Hall of Flame oh, football he's a player, Hall of Fame. trailblazer. He is, yeah, yeah. He is one of the he would have broken a bunch of records if he didn't, you know, bust up his knees. I mean, he's really yeah. the, the highlights of him. And this predates our football watching. You know, we didn't mm-hmm. see Gail players, Gail Sayers play in person. Um, but Gail Sayers kids, uh, Timmy and Scott, they live on our block and they go to our high school. Mm-hmm. And they would come into my backyard and we would play pickup basketball. And we would always bring up the movie. My brother and I would be like, man, Billy <laughs> Williams played your dad in the movies. I wonder who's going to play our dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so interesting about that, about that choice is I, I feel like one of the other things you see is kind of a recurring thing is a way that, um, you know, sports is one of those areas like you were talking about at the top of the show that really kind of brings together a lot of kind of, you know, diverse people, diverse communities, diverse personalities. And, you know, you, you see it in, in films like Brian's songs or later, you see it addressed directly in a movie, like remember the Titans. But then, you know, I feel like there was a moment where, uh, you know, Rocky and Creed, you know, Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa, have you're, this you're, you're in- taking Khalil's next uh, oh, okay well let's go yeah. no 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 Jesse you run with it man this is a three way conversation you run with it because what I what I find so interesting about is about sports is they can be a really the locker room you know yeah. is sort of this you know ideally is sort of this equal opportunity place where you know the hierarchy of the locker room is really based on performance on the field right like it, no one that should be the only thing that kind of matters in that sports context so it allows for a lot of really kind of interesting interesting conversations and, uh, you know, people to unpack their interesting ideas, but with the Rocky and Apollo thing, it was, you know, it was obviously race was a part of it, but race was also, it was, it was kind of that colorblind thing where we're, we're, yeah, we're going to, we're going to push on the race stuff for Rocky, because if you think like, what was Rocky, he's the great white hope, mm-hmm. right? So, so white people, Boxing has always been this space of the outsiders, you know, first white immigrants and, 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 and Jews and then black people and then, you know, Latino people. And so this idea that there's this great white hope that he's going to take the title back for the people. So that's Rocky one. Right. Yeah. And Apollo is this showboat and sort of like embracing these ideas of, you know, in some ways, sort of the uppity Negro, um, and, Not in some ways. I mean, that yeah. it it is a it's like taking literally for those who listen to the, the first of our uh, shows. It's like taking Eddie Murphy's character and blending him with Danny Glover because, mm-hmm. you know, Danny he's older, Glover, he's, established. It, it, he's yeah. the older, he's established. He's the successful one. The underdog is the white guy. And, and the know, reversals it, of being like, you know, Rocky is inarticulate and he's ill-educated and, and Apollo Creed is is so beautiful and well quaffed and well spoken yeah. like he is right. lives in the big fancy house and rocky lives in the slum of, of that's right South and and there's a subtext so here i mean this is just so rich right yeah, yeah. there's a subtext better. there's a subtext of a kind of like backlash to like affirmative action reverse racism because part part of the narrative of working class white americans in the 1980s when these films were being made was that like black people are achieving Right. Just like we are. And we don't need government to help them anymore because we're hard on our luck, too. And so so Rocky's story becomes part of a larger cultural backlash to the very notion that if we can point to figures of black success, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Cosby, then clearly there's no more racism anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, there might even be more disadvantages directed towards 
to white people in this day and age than to black people. And, and, and then the Rocky movies get even more interesting in terms of their friendship and race. So you get to Rocky three. And that's when they really become boys. They become, you know, yeah. Apollo Creed agrees to train Rocky. Yeah. Because now he's got to fight. Right, because we have a common enemy. And the yeah. common enemy. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 so, the communism, yeah. Right. Right. No, that's, that's Rocky Four. Oh, got, yeah, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Rocky Three, it's Mr. T. That's right. And, and, and Mr. T is so street in a way, like so black, quote unquote mm. black, that, that, that Rocky needs Apollo to teach him how to become more street again. And he needs to get this education because now that Rocky has become world champion and sort of become more, more outside, like his power, they have to like team up to fight the, the, a different kind of black person. Mm, uh, right. Yeah. It's why. And then the line and the line between a different kind of black person and a, and a communist gets really blurry. <laughs> but then, then you get the Rocky <laughs> Ford. That's another, yeah. that's another kind of outsider. Totally. Yeah. They yeah. could team yeah. up to, to fight communists uh, yeah. and sort of jingoism. That, that is a really fascinating, there's some really fascinating parallels. I, I feel like, especially coming out of the last four or five years where, you, you know, you've seen, we've kind of seen that cycle happen very rapidly where, you know, I, I, the, the point you were making about how early on in the films, uh, Apollo, you know, became this symbol of, well, maybe racism doesn't exist because look, Apollo Creed's the biggest celebrity. And, you know, you kind of hear in sort of this, you know, in different parts of the country, this sort of there, when people act aggrieved, it's like, well, you know, especially, you know, maybe different segments of white people who feel like, well, I'm, you know, entitled to this or that. And look at all of this achievement by, you know, this minority community or that, you know, or, or this group. It is interesting that Rocky sort of probably unintentionally, but really kind of predicted a, a lot of this of what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I'd be, I it's, I'd be, I'm interested in the the degree of self-awareness Sylvester Stallone has not just about sort of the films, but also sort of the underlying messages of them. Yeah. I think limited, but that's, I cool. think limited. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause, cause all, all, all of those, um, all of those first blood uh, Rambo movies have so many racist tropes in them. Yeah. Uh, especially the, the most recent one is just, it's oh. hard to, uh, it's hard to watch. So Khalil, I'm going to, I'm going to throw another one at you and I want to hear what you think. Yep. Another combo. All Rick right. James, Rick James and Tina Marie. <laughs> well, now that's, that's a hell of a curveball. Uh, wow. Explain um, who they are. So Rick James is, uh, is a 1970s, early eighties, uh, recording genius. of Funk, funk you know, Mary's yeah, funk yeah. and soul and, and rock. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, probably for for a younger set of listeners, the term Mary Jane as a euphemism for pot or weed uh, comes, you know, in part from Rick Jane's famous song, Mary Jane, which is a love yeah. song uh, uh, to, to weed. And um, he has his protege. He starts. Well, to yeah. The, I forgot the, her name, which is Tina, 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 Marie, Marie. Tina Marie. Yeah. yeah. So, so Tina Marie is just like this. In, incredible um, female performer. She's white, but she, I mean, we often think of blue eyed soul as, as a white guy singing, singing soul, but, but she embodies a, a white woman as a blue eyed soul artist in like the most incredible way. And, uh, and, and when you say in the incredible way, the thing about Tina Marie's music, which is so interesting and, and, you know, she's not glamorous looking or anything. She was actually in their production. She was a, a, a writer there that he suddenly heard performing and gave her a shot. 
is that how embraced she is by by the black community. Mm, right. As, right. Which yeah. is which she's, is sort of go yeah. ahead. Well, she's performing at a time when Shaka Khan would probably be her 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 he is her contemporary and Shaka and Rufus uh are a are sort of bigger. Um but but you know you could listen to Shaka Khan and Tina Marie on the same playlist and nobody would bat an eye. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so they, they are collaborators and friends in a way, and then they had develop a relationship. And I, I, I brought this one up to my brother, Jake, who's a, a musical genius kind of guy. And he was like, one of the reasons that, that people embrace her is because she also had to survive James, uh, Rick James, you know, having a relationship with him. People could relate yeah. to that because he's yeah. so awful. <laughs> That's a, it's such an interesting, um, y- you know, example and duo because music is a space, particularly, I feel like, you know, kind of, you know, at, at that time, like Motown and funk, you know, definitely um, had sort of regional roots and, you know, cultural, um, you know, kind of significance beyond just the music and beyond just the kind of the popularity. And, you know, right now you kind of see hip hop right now, you know, is predominantly, um, you know, African-American artists. And, but you do see some interesting, like I think about like Run the Jewels, where they have this yeah. really interesting between Killer Mike and, yep. and LP, where, you know, they acknowledge alongside issues like racial injustice or the criminal justice system or, you know, kind of systemic issues. They're also able to acknowledge their racial differences in a really kind of interesting and honest way throughout their lyrics. Why do you guys kind of think, you know, having thought a lot about these dynamics, it is somewhat rare to find artists that are able to strike that balance of acknowledging differences in kind of thoughtful, interesting ways, um, but still kind of maintaining a fidelity to the, the core of what the music is? Yeah, I mean, there's so much appropriation, right? And so there's all this tension. And then, and then when you get someone like a Vanilla Ice, like blowing up, you're like, really what? the audiences want to spend money on is a white, a, a, a worse white version of what's already going on. And so yeah. there, there's that tension. I mean, you made me think about like the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and yeah. how, how they were presented to us as like almost like their, their, the younger siblings, you know, of Run mm-hmm. DMC, the Beastie Boys. Um, but then in their music, they, the Beastie Boys didn't try to rap about experiences that the that, that Run DMC was having. They yeah. sort of had their own kind of experiences. That seems like, you know, they yeah. expressed yeah. what they knew. Yeah, yeah. Well, another version of that would be Eminem and Dr. Dre's collaborations. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, within the industry, Eminem probably still remains the most respected white MC, um, aside from the great music he made with Dr. Dre, but because he was able to speak to his experiences and not to try to to create some story for himself or within yeah. his music that was that was inauthentic. Yeah. And it became universal because it was so real. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it was I think that honesty is is really key there. When, when, you know right. what I mean? That that universal is like, let's just acknowledge what we need to acknowledge here. I mean, you know, especially the early stuff with Dr. Dre you know, Eminem tackles that tension head on a lot of times, you know, right. and, 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 and there's a degree of self-deprecation too. I feel like that, that is, that's interesting to hear as well, you know? Yeah. So, so I have, I have a kind of pairing okay. um, that is both uh, reflective, Uh-oh. reflective okay. of our childhood and also something that's contemporary. So I'm going to mention two interracial buddies uh, on television okay. that, uh, that are bracketed by pretty much our lives. So there's Crockett and Tubbs uh, in the Miami Vice series, mm-hmm. yes, yes, which was like 
amazing. It's the, you know, the series starts in 1984. Yeah. It runs for six years. I mean, this is exactly the arc of time where puberty has taken over. <laughs> so like the two coolest guys on television, you know, living in the sexiest city in America. Um, it was just talk about must see TV yeah. right? for, for us. This is the same year we, we become friends uh, and, and, and runs through the time we go off to college. Uh, so John, Don Johnson, like yeah, uh, we, that, was, that was how we dressed. We had like, <laughs> like you know, aqua blue T-shirts yeah. and white jack, white suit jackets, just bom- bombing around, bombing around Hyde Park in like a red convertible yeah. Ferrari. Oh, yeah, oh, man, it was amazing. I mean, yeah, was so like, so just for the record, in case so the listener cool. doesn't know, so cool. this, the white guy's Don Johnson, the actor Don Johnson, whose whose daughter um, has been you know key in the. Uh, five uh, Shades of Grey series. Uh, yeah. Melanie, what's her last name? She doesn't you're, have the same last name. You're really going on the tangent to the tangent. Oh, yeah. whatever. D- D- right. Dakota, yeah. yeah, Dakota Johnson. Dakota, yeah. Dakota Johnson, yeah. yeah. And um, and then the Philip Michael Thomas, who, who yeah. never really had a, a big career. Um, that was it for him, really, uh, Miami Vice. But he was another version of, of, of uh, Billy D. Williams um, yeah. for television for, for a brief period. All who, right, so who, I said I... Who's the other ahead. one? Yeah, who's the so other the one? So the other one uh, is the the character, the Falcon and the winter soldier and mm-hmm. in, in the Disney plus series, uh, which extends the Avengers series and, you know, where captain America, Steve Richards leaves off. Um, I really love this reboot um, of, of sort of now Anthony Mackie becomes captain America, but the journey to that in the first season and the relationship with the character played winter soldier by Sebastian Stan is really fascinating because it's like the smartest writing for an interracial buddy relationship that actually takes on this question of can a black man embody America? Mm, and yeah. the white guy thinks so, but the black guy is skeptical. Hmm. And it's that skepticism that plays out. And what's fascinating is the formula is linked to a kind of third enemy. And the hmm. enemy is embodied by this young woman of color who is supposed to stand in for Black Lives Matter. And rather than vanquishing the enemy as if her critique isn't isn't real about like, how should the world be organized? How do we deal with climate change and all of this? They come to a compromise that she has to she has to live. The ideas have to live, but we have to do it a different way. It's just really smart. Um, And so where Miami Vice was sort of vacuous, a cop, you know, cop show, which was just cute and sexy and, you know, had all these, you know, babes on television for these guys to like, you know, chase after. Um, here is like something that is incredibly thoughtful and rich. Um, and I'm look, I can't wait to see more. Well, I, I have a, I have a follow up to the, because those are fantastic choices. And I, and I love like the symbolism that, you know, burying the shield because the Captain America shield has weight. Like, right. you know, I'm talking literally like in the series to, to carry yep. it means something like right. you're carrying something. The implication is, it's not just a, a, a weapon that can be used to thank, you know, to take care of bad guys and enforce justice, but it's this thing that only you can carry. And, you know, it has this interesting symbolism, but the other, the, the, the Crockett and Tubbs, it really, there, you look at uh, lethal weapon, you look at Die Hard. you look yeah. at uh, 48 hours for a long time. I mean, you could look at rush hour, you know, th- there are yeah. a lot of examples that a lot of times Hollywood was positioning these, you know, kind of interracial friendships through the lens of law enforcement, which, 
you know, part of it is probably just because at cop movies were really popular and it's a great way to get people, uh, you know, to watch a TV show or movie to have explosions and gunfights and things like that. But it's also, there's a degree of irony there that law enforcement is the, is kind of the, the central thing that brings these individuals together. Why do you guys think that was such a prominent theme from Miami vice all the way through, you know, kind of buddy cop movies that they're, you know, kind of still making. Yeah, yeah, we we presented uh, real villains that they could crush, you know, like like and and you know whether they were or weren't black and brown people in the real world, that's what was going on with the drug war at that time. Mm. So crime was on people's minds, and not just crime, but but coming down with an iron fist on it, and and we didn't want to think about uh, the humanity of people who also commit crimes and like what it means to to try to reinter try to try to hold them accountable but then also bring them back to society. We were yeah. the, the 80s were this time and then moving into the 90s of of not questioning that at all. So what an easy way to set up like a story. In the same way that the Soviet Union and Russia became an easy sort of like boogeyman and and you know for most of you know villains in, in most TV shows and movies in our youth you don't have to think about think about it too deeply. They're just like represent bad. Yeah. And and just to say something, you know, that's quite obvious is the way to close ranks around a, a society uh, of shared brotherhood and interracial community is to find a common enemy. Mm. Yeah. And so if the if the story is constantly about, you know, the common enemy that we must band together um, in order to vanquish, otherwise we both lose, then that common enemy could be a drug dealer in one episode and it could be a Russian spy in another. Yeah. <laughs> so or a Colombian, you know, Colombian drug dealer, which like, you know, gets, gets both of them at once almost. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I have, I have one heavier comment to make and then, yeah. we'll give it, which is, I have to note that in our discussion, you know, we're, we're not bringing up any women, you mm. know, we're not talking about that women, buddy, interracial buddy, anything. And mm. that says a lot about, our pop culture and our imagination and representation, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're talking about representation of black and white, but how rarely women are represented in these spaces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we sat around and tried to like rack their, our brains for them. And I was like, you know, even, even in like literature, I was like, was Toni Morrison really tight with Fran Lebowitz? You know, like I was like yeah, trying to yeah. think of these great, like, um, but it, it's really, it's really important to note that, that yeah. um, here we yeah. are three guys having this discussion and we did we did shout out tina marie Marie. Um, yeah yeah but But she was attached to you know we had that episode about interracial buddy films there aren't there aren't female interracial buddy films yeah yeah it doesn't exist do do you think i and there's probably it's probably multifaceted reasons and i appreciate you bringing this up then you know obviously women have been um you know underrepresented in a lot of ways not just in hollywood but in, in a lot of you know high profile positions in academia in the worlds of business and science and technology um it, but the idea of you know uh, the three of us who probably have spent a lot of time thinking about pop culture and music and television that are really kind of you know, it's really a struggle to kind of think of what is a female duo that is, you know, that kind of represents these different things. Do you think that is, I think, you know, obviously there are major issues with how, with female women getting the same opportunities as men still today, but from the the standpoint of these racial dynamics, 
How do you feel like it kind of differs with men and women? Or is that too complex of a, too nuanced of, of, no, a, no. of a question to kind of address like that? L- listen, I'm, I'm going to quote Jacqueline Stewart, who we ended up speaking with, who happens to be my sister-in-law and is a brilliant, brilliant film scholar. And, and she's running the Academy Museum now in, in Hollywood. Academy and, of, of, of Motion Picture um, Academy Museum. of Motion Picture Museum. She's the director yep. for it, uh, the creative director. And we asked her that question because she knows more about film than we do by a million miles. And she said, basically, like, listen, in in the popular imagination, we have just enough like bandwidth to hold one idea in place about about race. And that's like, okay, we can take we can handle two guys and we can maybe like have one white, one white, one black. And to introduce another variable like like women is like, whoa, like Mm. that's so overwhelming an idea that like we can't even go there. And, and yeah. the way that you said, like, it's like, we can't even, that's too much. It's like too yeah. many, too many balls up in the air and too much, too much of our failings. Yeah. 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 So I, I was going to say, um, so she also shared one other insight with us, which is that the role of black women has often been when they are proximate to white women in television or movies, often as a kind of helpmate. Um, and so the, the classic version of this is the Mammy character played by Hattie McDaniels in the 1939 Gone with the Wind, which, of course, was a racist, you know, uh, nostalgic film to the lost cause of the Civil War. But Scarlett O'Hara and Hattie McDaniels, you know, have this bond that is crucial to the narrative arc of the story. Yeah, yeah. And we see that play out in a lot of films where women are the protagonists in the story. Mm. I love that she brought up a film we would have never thought about. That, that Jackie said, what about Driving Miss Daisy? A different kind of buddy film altogether. A different kind right? of buddy film altogether. <laughs> yeah. And it was like... Yeah. It blew our right, minds yeah. a little. Like, oh, that's right. really interesting. And, you know, of right. course... The, show, film- the black chauffeur uh, played by... Yeah. Um, I'm, names well, are escaping me right now. And, and it's, I think it's a Broadway play, right? Before it's a, it's uh, a Broadway play. Right. But yeah. there's a film, but, but, but the idea that movie is wildly problematic. I mean, it's a yeah. boss and a chauffeur and they, they create a bond, you know, by just being in this Morgan Friedman, space. Morgan Friedman is the chauffeur. Yeah. 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 So, so the one, the one exception to this that I've come up with, uh, it took a while after we first speculated about this, Ben was the character, um, the sidekick um, to Ally McBeal, um, mm. Lisa Lisa Nicole Carson uh, is yeah. her is her uh, name as an actress, but, and she's a little bit more than a sidekick. Um, but you know, so she's a, she's somewhere in between being the 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 black woman who's really only there to kind of enrich the life of yeah. the main character and this sort of neurotic lawyer played by Ally McBeal. Because there there is this convention of having the best friend and making right. it a yeah. colorful character. Right. Right. Like you have Queen Latifah played this for a long time where she suddenly would be somebody's best friend and show up. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't think it, it entirely escapes the kind of mammy role of, of being the helpmate. Um, but it's a little bit more evolved uh, in, yeah. in that uh, in that show. It, and, I, and I do feel like there I, I remember in, and this isn't, uh, you know, like a buddy movie, but the movie Lovebirds I saw recently, which is like an interracial couple, is that the Kamel Nanjani and Issa Rae, like, you know, they have this incredible yeah. chemistry, but it's this diverse couple that are able to talk about their, you know, um, their relationship in, in really frank, funny, interesting ways that doesn't feel, you know, kind of like preachy or overly analogous to anything. It's just, here are two people that happen to be, you know, kind of, ethnically diverse that are in a relationship 
and okay, let's put them on screen and make some wild stuff happen. And I feel like that is such a natural way sometimes to just, um, to see people, their, their humanity, as well as allow them to be honest about some of the nuances of, of kind of relational dynamics. So so I got related to that. I have one last space where in pop culture, where that that sort of like bros being connected across race is allowed to happen. Yeah. And that's in the stoner film, you know, the the, the bond through smoking weed. Going back to Cheech and Chong and then Harold and Kumar and then half-baked. And so we get, you know, all three of them you get because, because, you know, through getting high, we're all kind of like, we can, we can hang with one another and get past our differences. <laughs> like that's a, that's a total trope. That's a total right. trope. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 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 The Harold and Kumar first film was uh, was just incredible, right? Yeah. Maybe, just... maybe maybe that's cross ethnicity there. I don't know if yeah. I would say you know South and East Asian, but no, like, no, it's it's you yeah. know by American standards, it's definitely interracial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I I haven't I haven't watched Half Baked since it was on like uh, for like two years solid when I was like fourteen years old on Comedy Central. So I don't know if I could like objectively uh, unpack the uh, you know some of the racial undertones, but I do remember thinking the relationships seem very natural, seem like relationships with, yeah. you know, my buddies that, uh, that I knew it was just, you, you know, it, it was, yeah. People finding a commonality that was really kind of separate than a lot of things that were happening around them, whether yeah. that's, you know, sports, you know, getting in some crazy adventure because of weed. And, 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 the, and the thing about being a stoner is that you actually remove yourself from society, right? Like you're, you, you don't participate. You're just like, uh, you're so, uh, not just like uh, a slacker and lethargic and hanging out on a couch somewhere. So you're not engaging with the outside world in a way, which then also creates this space where, where not just hijinks can happen, but these kinds of connections. Yeah. Well, well, uh, Khalil, Ben, this is such a fun conversation. I definitely encourage people if they want more conversations like this, check out some of my best friends are, it is a, such a fun podcast. I really appreciate not only you guys coming on listed to kind of, uh, to talk about some of these fun, uh, different pop culture relationships, but also being willing to do a, a podcast that could confronts a topic. Like I said, that a lot of people have different levels of kind of discomfort or just don't know how to broach it. You guys do it in such a natural way in your genuine friendship and affection for each other really comes out in the show. And I feel like the intellectual uh, conversations are really <laughs> enjoyable and challenging and fun to listen to, but it's also fun to hear two good friends talk about things they're passionate about. So hey, I hey. definitely encourage people to check it out. Thanks, Thanks so much. Jesse. That means a lot. We are, Thank you. We are really happy to be here and, and, uh, and look forward to, to, to learning from you as well and your guests. Awesome. Well, thanks guys. I appreciate you coming on. Take care. Take care. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.